Mark 14. Want you want you to imagine an American military base somewhere like Afghanistan. It's midnight. The whole base is asleep, except for those who have some duties. And one of those is a guard who's at his post. And his only responsibility is to stay awake and watch. He's a lookout. He's a watchman. And so he sits there and he looks out over the hills and over the, over the desert That first hour, he's alert, he's fresh, he's awake, he's watching for any movement of the enemy, maybe approaching. The second hour, his eyes become heavier, it's one o'clock, he thinks about home, what his children might be doing at this moment. The third hour, he starts to feel bored, he gets distracted and starts thinking about going to sleep and... Maybe he plays a game in his head or tells himself a story or maybe even pulls out a phone and, and watches a video. And this, this watchman, this guard, has, has now stopped doing what? His job. He might be present in his position as a guard or a watchman or a lookout there, but he's actually not doing his responsibility because he is not being alert He's not watching like he should. In our text, Jesus warned his disciples to watch, to be alert to the spiritual realities around them and namely to temptation that was about to come upon them. Ephesians chapter 6 says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, against people. Really the wrestling is, he says, against spiritual powers. So we need to be alert as Christians to the spiritual war that is raging around us every day. As Christians, we are lookouts. We are watchmen, watchwomen, if you want to say. And we're not looking out for other people's sin. We're actually on the lookout for the spiritual dangers and traps that are coming after us. We are to be aware and watchful, knowing that Satan is out to destroy us as we, as we heard in the passage that Norm and we all read as a congregation. In our text in Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 14, we see many people overcome, even really oblivious to their sin and, and the spiritual realities of the war taking place around them. We see the disciples who are self-confident. Jesus says, you're going to forsake me. And they say, no, Lord, we're not going to do that. And so they are unaware of really the spiritual dangers that were taking place there. Judas allowed the enemy to enter his heart through greed. He was controlled by Satan, allowed Satan to control him, and he betrayed the Lord. The Jewish leaders were filled with with rage and and jealousy against Jesus, and they, they rushed a trial. The Roman soldiers were driven by the lust for violence and and Pilate and Herod by the approval of people more than the approval of God. So they, so they beat and they mocked and they killed him. So you see all these people who are involved in the spiritual battle, the spiritual warfare. They face extreme temptation. And they're carried away by their own lusts of their 
heart. And and they seem to be unaware of the, the spiritual realities. And here they are, blindly, spiritually, blindly following the deceitful leader, Satan. Except one. And who's that? That's Jesus. He was tempted. All hell came against him. Yeah, he was alert. He was aware. He was filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so he endured. He trusted his father. He prayed. He obeyed. And what we see in this text this morning is this tension between good and evil. Jesus and sinners and Satan. The flesh and the spirit of God. We see this tension between Men who are making choices to follow their own sinful hearts, which resulted in them being overcome by temptation. And Jesus, who, who followed the spirit of God in the predetermined will of his father. And he, was, he actually himself overpowered temptation by the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer. So in, in one of the significant tensions you see in this passage as you read through it, is just this, this idea of man's responsibility... And how these these individuals, these men, actually sinned by their own free choice against God. And then God's sovereignty. He actually predestined all these things to happen. And so you look in verse 18. Look at Mark 14, 18. We saw this a couple weeks ago. Jesus, at the Passover meal, says, as in verse 18, as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. So Jesus foretold right there that Judas was going to betray him. And this is also prophesied. Look down in verse 21. He says, for the son of man goes as it is written of him. So here he's saying, listen, all this that's taking place was actually prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. So what? What Jesus and the disciples were about to go through was actually planned before time, prophesied in the Old Testament, and at that moment moved along by the will of God. And from a human perspective, though, it can be difficult to to juxtapose both those together. How do you put together all these people who are sinning against God and rejecting Christ and and God who actually is the one who put all this together and move this all forward by his divine providence well the bible never presents them as a conflict presents them as two truths that we accept and we trust in fact jesus used this time it's very interesting jesus used this time not only to establish that everything that's happening was planned by god but also to establish that these individuals this particularly the disciples were being tempted by satan and listen and to warn them to warn them to be careful, to to watch out, actually to command them, be alert. It's really interesting to think about that dynamic. In fact, look down in verse 27. We'll read the text, the whole text in a moment. Just look at a couple of these verses. Mark 14, 27, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. So they haven't sinned yet, but they're about to. Verse 30, he said to Peter, truly I tell you, this very night... Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So Jesus told his disciples, and then he told Peter emphatically, like, you are going to sin against me. 
In, in, in verse 21, look at verse 21. It's actually prophesied this was going to happen. In Zechariah chapter 3, it says, For it is written, in verse 27, I will strike the shepherd, that's Jesus, and the sheep will be scattered. Now look at verse 41. In the middle of the text, it says, it says, it is enough. The hour has come. What's, what's the hour that's come? It, it's that a period of time that God scheduled for Christ to suffer at the hands of sinners. And then he says, and now my betrayer is here. J- Judas, by his own free will, was, was betraying Jesus. And then look at the end of verse 49. He says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And he's, he was speaking there in regard to the temple guards taking him away. And one point, I think when you read these kind of, think about these truths and read these passages, it's good to point out that, that, that God is not tempting people to sin here. Like James makes that very clear in his book that God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any person. Yet, this is the amazing thing about God. God in his infinite wisdom and power is able to take all things and turn them into good. And that includes the free choices of humans and satanic powers. And in, in this particular case, to turn it into the greatest good, and that is to have Christ, the Son of God, killed, defeating Satan and sin and hell and death. Listen to Peter and John after the resurrection, after they are Awakened to spiritual realities, they pray this. Sovereign Lord, which means he's the one in charge over everything. Truly, in this city, in Jerusalem, there were gathered against your holy servants, holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Listen to this. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So you see that tension that's taking place here? So so the Lord ordained and orchestrated every event we are reading as we go through this text in Mark 14, Mark 15, Mark 16. Yet the evil hearts that accomplish the work are no less guilty for the role that that they played. Some might think in a text like this, maybe when we're talking about God's predetermined plan and it's all prophesied, he might say, well, Jesus might say, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, guys. This is all prophesied anyways. No big deal. But actually, he does the exact opposite. Jesus warned Judas at the meal the consequences for his sin. He actually warned the disciples to be alert and wake up to spiritual realities, even though they were about to fall into sin. In fact, look, he, he started this conversation actually a couple days before this in this passage. Go back to, to Mark chapter 13 and just notice how he kind of launches into this at the beginning of the week. At the Olivet Discourse, verse 33, Jesus is telling a parable and he's talking about spiritual alertness. Look at verse 33 of chapter 13. He says, be on guard. This is Jesus. Keep awake. And particularly, he's talking about this alertness of his second coming. But, But you get this idea that Jesus is saying that we need to be aware of spiritual realities around us. Look at verse 35. He says, therefore, stay awake. This is a present tense, ongoing. This is a, an active imperative. It's something we're to continually obey the Lord in, to be awake and to be alert. And look at verse 37. He says, 
And what I say to you, I say to all, and he concludes it with this big kind of punch, stay awake. So he used the same verb here three times in verse 33, verse 35, and verse 36. Stay awake, guys. Stay awake, guys. Be aware of the spiritual realities, guys. And, this, and why would he do that? Why is he talking to them at this moment? And he, he's setting them up for this week where they're going to face some severe temptations to fall away. And he's saying, listen, wake up. In fact, go, go down to Mark 14. Look at verse 38. He uses this same verb, this stay awake, this alert, this present imperative. He says, in verse 38, watch be alert, and then he adds another command, and pray that you enter, may not enter into temptation. He says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So here you have these two commands. Be alert, guys. Be alert and, and pray. And he puts them in the realities of the spiritual realm. The flesh is weak, so if you, if you try to live this life on your own, in your own flesh, it's too weak to do it. But you need the Spirit of God to empower you, to, to see what's really happening around you, and then to pray. Well, what's he talking about? We, he's talking about praying here. Well, you, I, think, I want you to think back to this illustration I use of these, these watchmen or the guard there on that base, the military base. And if, if a guy's on the military base in Afghanistan, maybe right now, it's probably the middle of the night, and he, he's watching out. If, if he sees some, an enemy approaching, what is he to do? Is he to go get his gun and run out there and fight him? No. What's he supposed to do? Go get reinforcements, right? In other words, it's, it's not up to, for him to watch and then to go do it himself. It's actually up for him to watch and then say, I need to get reinforcements to take care of that enemy out there. And that's prayer. That's prayer. It, it's going to the divine resources and and asking God to enable us to follow him in obedience. And so, so as we read through this text this morning, notice both of these, these, this watching and this praying, this alertness and this divine enablement from God. So Mark chapter 14, look down in verse number 26. The Bible says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he, Peter, said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and, and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. Even to death, remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed. If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. 
remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleep asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy and, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping? Taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray for the blessing of God upon the preaching of his word. Father, we ask that your spirit will empower the word of God. Bring, produce life within us to help us to understand the spiritual realities through the truth of your word. And we are so blind. We can be so blind. The, the, the physical world, the, the distractions of this world can just shift our mind away from you into just things that will soon fade, things that will soon be gone. And so I pray this morning that our eyes will look to you in faith and you will help us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me ask you a question. If you're married in here this week, well, hopefully you're going to stay married the whole week. If you're married, what, what day this week are you scheduling to have an argument with your wife? Do you have that scheduled out? You know, what, what day are you going to be uh, uh, obstinate to her or... Or you're going to be a grumpy to him. You get, maybe like Tuesday, you should just go ahead and plan that for Tuesday. Or maybe you're a child in here. What, what day are you planning on defying your parents? You know, having a grumpy attitude, go sitting on your bed, you know, fold your arms, roll your eyes, whatever, you know. You know, maybe, maybe you should plan that for Wednesday. Does that sound like a good day for that? Or, or maybe the, the think about the struggle, the temptation that, you, that you're, you face in your life. When are you planning on, on going through that temptation? Maybe, maybe you should schedule that for Thursday. Now, that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? And why is that ridiculous? Because we don't schedule things like that unless you premeditate your sin, and that's even worse. But, but in general, we don't do that. Temptation just comes, and it happens. It's, it's a surprise, you could say it that way, can, that way. In fact, you can think about your week this past week and some of the struggles that you went through. And, and maybe you think through some of those arguments you had, or maybe some of those sins you committed, and you regret those, and... So, so how is it going to change this week? I mean, as you think about those struggles, those temptations, you know, you were lazy at school this week. You procrastinated. You know, you spent time on the internet for four hours on YouTube, and you know you should have been studying. You didn't. And you regret it. What are you going to do? Next week, what am I going to do? I'm going to try harder. Right? What, what's your solution? I'm going to be more determined this week, more confidence in myself. Well, actually, what I want you to see from the text this morning is, is that way of living, an, an approach that, that I overcome temptation by just having more determination, more confidence, is actually a worldly way of thinking. It's actually a worldly way of approaching life. In our text, Jesus presents two ways of living. It's, it's the flesh-controlled life. It's the spirit-controlled life. 
Look in verse 38. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he gives this contrast. The spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus taught that you are either living as a person who is is controlled by his own flesh or a person who's controlled by the spirit of God. A flesh-controlled person is is blind to spiritual realities. It's a person who who lives by their their own thoughts. Whatever they think, they they live that way. Whatever they feel, they they do that. It's a person who is really controlled by God. By their, their own heart, their own flesh, their own person. By s- the stream of social and cultural opinions. And they're the person that really just depends on their own, their own self. They're self-sufficient, you could say it that way. As opposed to a person who, who Jesus is an example of. Of a person who's controlled by the spirit of God. Who is, who is alert to spiritual realities. Who knows what's taking place around them. Why it's taking place. And is dependent Upon the Lord in prayer. That you can think about some scriptures, right? That, that talk about this. Galatians chapter 5. Paul, a disciple of Jesus, said, We walk, I say to you, walk in the spirit. The idea of walking with someone is a relational, that's a relational word. To walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. flesh. And then he says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. In the spirit against the flesh, they're opposed to each other so to keep you from doing the things that you should do. So what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at this contrast between a person who, who is living their life that's just driven by their own desires, by their own heart, by their own flesh, and a person who submits themselves to the Holy Spirit of God. And the outline is actually very simple. I didn't put it on the screen, sorry, and I didn't put it in your bulletin, but I'm just going to tell it to you right now and you can write it down. And Jesus gives two qualities of a spirit-controlled person. So two qualities of a spirit-controlled person. First, a spirit-controlled person is alert to spiritual realities. Alert to spiritual realities. And second, a spirit-controlled person is praise in dependence. Praise in dependence. Let me enunciate that one. It's not independence, it's dependence. So we alert to spiritual realities and praise in dependence. So first, we're going to look at a holy, a spirit-controlled person is alert to spiritual realities. And the first reality is, is that we are spiritually weak. Look at verse 27. Jesus warned them, you will all fall away. And how does Peter respond? Not me, Lord. And he points the finger and says, probably all of them. <laughs> but not me. And isn't that how we look at life? We're, we're so easy to compare ourselves to other people. I'm not as bad as that person is. You know, we kind of put ourselves up here. And I could see that person sitting. Well, it kind of makes sense that they're probably like that. I would never do something like that. That's the pride here we find in, in Peter's heart. And that's a person that is, is not alert to their own spiritual inability, their own spiritual weakness. A person who truly is alert to spiritual realities recognizes that their heart is weak. You can't live your life for Christ on your own. 
Without me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Nothing, zero. You're weak. In fact, Jesus responds back to him and says, actually, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter was so self-confident, looked at in verse 31, he emphatically declares, if I must die with you, this is like a, this is like a Shakespeare you know, play here, but this is real. I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. You can hear them all saying, yeah, yeah, Lord, yeah, we're, yeah, we're not going to deny you. We're not going to deny you. And how can you spend three years with Jesus? And you end it with, you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong, Jesus. I got more knowledge than you. I'm, I'm just going to override you on this one. You know, I got it here. It's because you're a person who doesn't see the spirituality that you're weak. And also you don't see the satanic tra- traps. And so really second, the second spiritual reality that you need to see are the satanic traps. Look at verse 27. He says, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. This is uh, the, uh, a Greek word that means to be offended or to stumble. It's, it's an imperative, so it's a command. But it's also a future. It's going to happen in the future, and it's a passive. It's something that's going to happen to him. And the idea is that there's going to be a trap set for you, and it's going to cause you a problem. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to trip the trap. You're going to fall spiritually. That's kind of the idea there, falling away. It's that you're going to, you're going to be um, offended. You're going to stumble because of a trap that's set. Now, have you ever, if you're, do you have someone in your life that likes to set pranks on you, likes to trap you in things? Maybe sometimes when their kids are younger, sometimes they like to do that. Maybe they like to scare you, you know, hide around a corner. A lot, of, a lot of kids like to do this to their mom for some reason. Moms tend to be a little more scared than dads do. And, and, and sometimes with kids, you can kind of see it coming, right? It's like, you know, they have something on their hand, and they have this little grin on their face. And they come up to you and say, hey, dad, and they slap you on the hand, you know, and it's green slime. And they say, I just wipe my nose, you know, and you're like, I know what that is, you know. But sometimes people try to trap us. And the idea behind that is that they're trying to trick us. Um, they're trying to trick us and ensnare us into what they want us to believe. You could say it this way. For those kind of people, you need to watch out for their traps, right? You need to be alert to their traps. And Jesus said, "Here, there's a trap that's coming for you, Peter. And who set the trap for him? Who set the trap for him? It wasn't Jesus. It was Satan, actually. It doesn't, it doesn't say this in this passage, but in Luke chapter 22, Jesus said to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you as wheat. In other words, Satan's the one that has set the trap. And Peter ignored the spiritual danger. He just is like, oh, I'm not going to think about that. Actually, no, I think I'm okay, Lord. I don't need to be concerned with that. In Luke 17, another time Jesus gathered with the disciples, and he says, I'm going to warn you guys of something. He said, temptations, this, this is the same Greek word that's found there in uh, Mark, 27, or Mark 14, 27. He says, temptations, these traps to sin, are sure to come. He said, guys, throughout your day, you're going to have these traps from Satan to, to sin against God. How does a trap work? Think about a trap. How does a trap work? Well, you don't see it, but then you get ensnared in it. It hurts you. And then afterwards, you're like, oh, why did that happen? 
Why did I see that? And that's how it works when you have a trap that's set. And that's actually what happens with some of the people in the passage here. Judas had this, actually. So Judas falls into the trap of greed. Oh, I get 30 pieces of silver. And we wonder what I could buy with 30 pieces of silver. This would be easy. I could just lead them. That's, that's easy money right there. And then Jesus is betrayed by Judas. Jesus is crucified. And then Judas goes, well, I betrayed innocent blood. What did I do? And he comes back to the religious leaders, throws the money back down on the ground. And what does he do? He goes out and he takes his own life. Didn't turn back in repentance to the Lord. Peter has the same kind of smack your head thing. You know, he, we're going to see this next week where he sins against the Lord. He denies him three times and Jesus looks at him and he goes, what did I do that for? That's kind of the idea of a trap. A trap goes, and he actually did repent. So that's something we'll see next week. But a trap has the idea that you don't see it. Then you get trapped in it. You get hurt. And then you go, oh, why did I do that? Sometimes you don't have the alertness to see that especially if you're not following Christ, you're not a believer in Christ. But when you are controlled by your own fleshly heart, many times you ask yourself the question, why am I doing this? And what's the answer? Because you're not alert to the spiritual traps that Satan is setting around you. And you're allowing your heart just to walk wherever and find yourself entrapped in his tricks. Look at verse 28. Jesus offers a promise of grace and restoration. After I'm raised up, though, here's another prophecy. I will go before you to Galilee. What's he going to do there? He's going to restore them. He's going to show love to them. In fact, Jesus, in another passage, says that he prayed for Peter, offers grace to Peter, that his faith would not fail. So I think as we think through our week and as we think through our days, we must, we must be awake to the reality that we, we're weak. Like, we, we actually are planning to go to work tomorrow, we actually could sin at work. Like, we might be annoyed by that coworker, even if I'm determined not to be. Like, I might be annoyed by them. Or I might sin against my kids this week. Or, or I might sin against my wife. Like, Satan's going to lay traps for me. So I need to be aware that I'm weak. I can't do it in my own strength. If I try to go through this week in my own strength, I'm probably going to fall into his traps. And I need to be alert to the spiritual realities around me. And then secondly, a spirit-controlled person is... A person who prays in dependence. He prays in dependence upon God. Here's Peter, so self-confident. He exemplifies a person who is fleshly controlled right here. Like, here's a person who the God of his life is, is self-determination. And J- Jesus emphatically rejected that approach in verse 30. He said to him, look at verse 30. He said to Peter, truly I say to you, this very night, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now think about it. If Peter was was controlled by the Holy Spirit, how do you think he would have responded? What would it look like for Peter at that moment to be spiritually aware? I mean, think maybe he would have said, oh, you know, Lord, it's true. First of all, if you say it, it's true. (laughs) Let's get that one correct. Secondly, I'm weak. I'm going to fall if I don't have your help. And Lord, I need you to pray for me and pray with me right now. I need grace from God. I mean, that's how he should have responded. But look how he does respond in verse 31. Emphatically, he says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter pledges his allegiance to Jesus. Now, as you look at this from a human perspective, we might think, wow, that's, that's pretty good. Like he's determined. 
He's saying, I'm determined to follow Jesus. You know, we sing the song, I have decided to follow Jesus. And we're like, I've decided I'm going to do it this week. You know, a lot of times kids will go to camp or go to something where they hear God's word. And then they sing that song at the very end. And I'm not, the song's not a bad song. I actually like the song. But sometimes you can get the idea that I'm determined to follow Jesus. And so the reason I'm going to follow him and obey him this week is because I've decided it. I will not deny the Lord. That's actually a really bad approach to spiritual growth. Sometimes people come to counseling and they want to know all the problems and struggles, you know, and so you're going through that with them. And then it's kind of like the idea that sometimes counselors can have, sometimes people, counselees that are in the meetings can have, is kind of the idea, okay, I'm going to try hard to do that this week. It's not what Jesus is teaching here. In fact, he goes contrary to that. Look at verse 31. Who is Peter depending on here in verse 31? If I must die with you, I will not deny you. He's trusting in himself. He's saying, I, Lord, will follow you. And you can trust me, Lord, because I trust myself. That's a really bad idea. That's a humanistic approach to life. And they all said the same thing. Yeah, 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 trust us. Yeah, trust us, Lord. That's what we're doing. We're trusting ourselves. And then verse 32, the Bible says, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. So they leave the upper room. They walk down the Kidron Valley. In the middle of the night here, they go up the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. And so there would have been some kind of garden with an olive press there and a garden with olive trees. And this was a place that evidently Jesus went to pray with his disciples. Maybe a, a follower of Christ owned this and let them use it. We don't really know all that, but he was there privately able to pray. This is the middle of the night. Look at verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and do what? What were they to do? Take a nap. Nope. Be alert. Here's the same word. Watch. Watch, guys. So be on alert here. Jesus came here to pray, and he took Peter, James, and John to pray with him. And Jesus was overwhelmed here with spiritual affliction. But Jesus, at the same time, was alert to spiritual realities. And what was taking place around him? Satan and the demons of hell were torturing him with temptation. And this is the beginning of his suffering for sin. We can see um, in another text that he actually was bleeding here as he was sweating drops of blood. In a few hours, he would begin to endure the full wrath for sin from his father for the sins of the world. Verse 33, look at it. It says, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. I want you to imagine a person right now that's sitting on death row. And, and maybe, maybe tonight they're, they're supposed to be executed at six o'clock. So they're counting down the hours until they die. That's got to cause you a lot of anxiety, right? A lot of anguish. Well, Jesus faced something far, far worse. It wasn't just his death. This was actually spiritual torment. This was actually Jesus giving himself over to demonic torture 
to the vile hell of the cross, to separation from the love of his father, to judgment for every sin that man has committed against God. And the anticipation of this caused him to collapse in anguish. Look at verse 34. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. Like I feel like I'm going to die even to death. And again, like I said, Luke twenty-two forty-four speaks of Jesus experiencing such distress, distress that he actually sweats drops of blood. So already in this garden, he's bleeding. And how did he, how did he respond to this distress? I mean, could you agree with me that this is, this is probably, this is not just probably, this is the most stressed a person has ever been. So he's 100% God, but he also is 100% human. He's about to experience the wrath for sin, for the sin of every person upon himself. So he's, you got anxiety disorder, right? He doesn't have a disorder, but he's got anxiety here. Think about how does he respond to his anxiety? How does he respond to it? He prays. He says in verse 34, he says, remain here and, and watch. Guys, be spiritually alert and then pray in dependence. And he goes and he prays. Now, what do, the, what do the disciples do? They sleep. In fact, the gospel of Luke tells us they slept because of sorrow. Of course, Luke was a doctor. So he diagnosed it. You know, the reason they were sleeping was because they were sorrowful. What were they sorrowful about? They're not really understanding all this. Well, they're confused. Jesus has kind of been negative to them, you know. You guys are going to deny me, you know, someone's here going to betray me. So we kind of feel a little bit like, hey, he's kind of beating us up a little bit, you know, and what's he talking about leaving and not being around anymore. And it's making us sad. John chapter 14, my heart is troubled. You know, their hearts are troubled. And how do they respond to sorrow? Go to sleep. They try to, you could say this way, they try to escape it, right? Oh, I got some problems. Now I got to take some pills and go to sleep. That's what, how I can take care of my problems. Ooh, that kind of hurt, didn't it? Sorry, kind of hurt me too. <laughs> what, is, what does Jesus do though? Look at verse 35. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed. And the word prayed here is an imperfect, which means it's a verb that, that took place in the past and it was ongoing. It was repeated over and over and over. Then what did he pray? He prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, but not what I will, but what you will. Again, what is he distressed about? You can see it there in verse 36. Remove this cup from me. This was a metaphor used in the Old Testament for the judgment of God poured out upon sinners. And the cup here will not be poured out upon sinners but Jesus, the Holy One, will drink the cup of God's wrath on the cross. Now, think about for a moment the worst person you can think about in this world. Maybe, maybe you think about a dictator like Mao Zedong or Hitler or Stalin. Okay? It's people who just mass murdered millions of people. Or maybe you think about a, a sadistic person who's, you know, who's done mass murders and killed people indiscriminately, children. Think about those people. You think about those people. What do they deserve? And pretty much universally, if you ask anyone in America, they're going to say, well, they deserve to be, go to hell. Like they deserve judgment from God. 
what kind of hell do those guys deserve? I mean, think about it. You'd indiscriminately kill millions of people. What do you deserve? Now, can you imagine having the eternal wrath that those men deserved put upon you? Can you imagine that? It might, it's kind of hard for us to imagine that. You know why? Because actually, we deserve the same wrath that they deserve as well. We recognize that we deserve that as sinners. But think about it this way. Jesus is sinless. He's never tasted separation from his father. He's never tasted judgment for sin because he has never sinned. He's in perfect unity for eternity with, his, with, his, with the triune God. But now the reality of hell for himself is only a few hours away. I was thinking about this. Just imagining what would it be like if I knew that I was going to experience hell in an hour. I mean, think about the anguish. But that's what Jesus experienced on the cross, the judgment for sin. And he did so as the Holy One. So what does he pray? I think a prayer as as a 100% human that I think we would probably pray as well. You can see it. He says, if it's possible that the hour might pass from him. And that was the content of his prayer. It's like, Father, all things are possible for you. Oh, please, is there a way that this can be removed? I mean, I, wow. The weight of what he was about to experience. But notice how, he, notice how he prays. First of all, he prays in a way that's very personal. It's a personal prayer. He says, Abba, Father. Jewish men would not pray like this. This is very personal. They wouldn't even say the name of God many times. Many times they would say, you know, uh, you know God, they refer to heaven or the temple when they would pray. And they wouldn't actually say God's name. But here, Jesus says, Abba, Father. Now, if you're a parent, you recognize when a child cries out, right? If you're, sometimes we're sitting in our house and we're meeting with people or just sitting inside and reading or something. And you hear a child that's crying in the backyard. And sometimes there's the, the cry of, I'm going to go tattle on someone. You know, it's, <laughs> you know, and it's like just trying to get someone else in trouble. I'm pretty good at that, aren't I? Well, I did that when I was a child too, so. Sometimes it's the pity, like, oh, God, oh, we, you know, and it's, and then mom kisses it. And for some reason, dad's kiss don't work. Dad's kisses don't work, but moms do, whatever. And then it automatically goes away, no more crying. Then you have the crying of like, <gasps> oh, oh, like there's 911 needs to be called. Mommy and daddy are the only ones that can take care of this unless we have to go to the doctor. There's different cries you have. And here Jesus has that really last cry there. It's, it's, it's not just a cry of, I'm talking to you right now. It's like, I, I need you, Father. Daddy, I need you. Help me. So we see this pure, intimate relationship with his Father. And notice he prays the truth, and he prays truthfully. So he prays the truth, and he prays truthfully. First, Jesus prayed, prayed the truth about his Father. He said, Abba, what does that mean? He's talking about the fact that he has a relationship with his father. He's speaking of the goodness of God, the, the love that his father has for him. Then also, he speaks about the greatness of his father. All things are possible for you. You're the omnipotent God. You have all power. Everything is possible for you, except sin. 
His prayer was personal. It was full of truth. So he talks about his father, and it was truthful. I mean, he just says something that's actually, if you read this, you might be very shocked by that. It's like, wait a second. How is that even possible? He, along with the triune God, like Jesus, the Son, and the Spirit, and the Father, all three, planned before time to have this event happen, and now he's praying for it not to happen? Like, that's hard to understand, isn't it? In fact, look at the verses there. He says he prayed that the hour might pass from him. He actually prayed that the cup of God's wrath could be removed from him. So Jesus was not sinning by praying this because he was sinless. He was praying just honestly what was he was feeling, what was on his heart. This is this is his humanity speaking here, wrestling with with his father, with the truth in prayer. Father, you love me. You can do anything you want. So what's the natural conclusion? Well, then you can, you can change this, can't you? But what you see is Jesus ends with what? He ends with submission. He ends with submission. So just think, through these, think through how Jesus prayed here. You have this idea. He, he prayed truth. He, he, he wrestled with how he was feeling about just the reality of what he's going through or what he's going to go through. And then he submitted to his father. I mean, he was wrestling with the truths, with the reality that his father was going to turn his back on him on the cross. Would, would a loving father do that? His father could do anything, right? Yet, yet his plan was, was from eternity past to have him die as a son of God? Wait, maybe, maybe God's will is better than my will. And, and that's really the submission that you see here with Jesus as he says, not my will, not what I'm feeling right now, not what I, but what you, Father, have chosen to be done. Jesus wrestled with the truths of God, with the feelings he felt, with the conclusion of surrender, not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus knew that the conclusion of prayer is this. It's giving up and trusting the Lord. It's surrender. His prayer was personal. It was truthful. It was full of truth. And it was submissive. And again, what you picture here is this kind of wrestling match that Jesus has. Wrestling. That's actually a great picture of prayer. You ever watch guys wrestle? It's kind of gross, actually. Two sweaty guys, you know, on a mat, wrestling, getting points. But the conclusion is that somebody wins. Hopefully someone's pinned and one person clearly wins. And that's actually what you kind of see in prayer is that you're, you're wrestling with the truth of who, this is who God is. This is how he reveals himself in the word. And this is kind of how I'm thinking, you know, that doesn't match up with this, or maybe it does, but I'm not really completely understanding how to apply it, or I'm really struggling with this. And it's like, but I submit to what you say into your will, that your will be done. My thoughts and my feelings are submitting to you in your truth, in your will. And so the end of a, of a wrestling match is that someone submits, and the end of prayer is that we submit to God. And it's kind of like a one and done, right? Is that how it works? Like what worked for Jesus, it was like, okay, you know, you say this, I feel this, so I, I surrender to you. Yep, there you go. Well, that's good. Is that how it worked for Jesus? No. I think it's a thing that, you know, we're like, I prayed about it. It didn't work for me. Maybe you're not approaching prayer the right way. Look at what happens with Jesus. Jesus is praying over and over and over and over. And then he comes back to the disciples. 
They're sleeping. He goes back and he prays over and over and over and over. Then he goes back to the disciples. They're sleeping. Then he goes back and he prays over and he does that three times. However long that took, we don't know, hours, maybe. He did pray through the night many times. But I think Jesus here is a perfect example of a spirit-controlled person's prayer. It's wrestling with the truth of God. With how you feel and what's taking place with the conclusion that you fully surrender to the Lord. In fact, look down in verse 37. Jesus prayed this and then he came back and found his disciples asleep. Verse 37, he said, uh, the scripture says, and he came and he found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Notice how he addresses Peter. He calls him Simon. Simon was the name that Peter had before he met Jesus. You could say it was the name that he had that was before he was a follower of Christ. His fleshly name, if you could say it that way. Peter was the name Jesus gave him, which meant rock, and it represented that he was a follower of Jesus. Jesus here says, Simon, I think Jesus was warning Peter that you're living your life without me. You're living your life in your own strength. You're sleeping, Peter. And he gives a great lesson in verse 38, which is kind of the pinnacle of this whole text. Watch, Peter, and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The disciples, they weren't watching and they weren't praying. They were sleeping. Think about a military base again. Think about that, that guard that's sitting there. Think about the enemy approaching. And that guard is asleep. That was what was happening with these guys. Jesus is saying, wake up, come on, wake up. The enemy is upon you. And they go back to sleep. Look at verse 39. And he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and he said to them, are you still sleeping, taking your rest? I mean, they did have a big meal. It is the middle of the night. But Jesus knows something that they don't know. That is that he knows the spiritual realities of what's taking place behind the physical world. And Satan and all hell is coming against him. And so verse 41, and he came the third time and said, are you still sleeping, taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. We're going to pick up with this text and then go to the next one next week and talk about some more from this passage. But I think what I want to do is bring it here to a conclusion and ask some questions. How are you living? How are you living your life? Like, how do you plan to live this week? Are you planning to just live it however your heart feels? You know? Follow your heart, as all the Disney movies say. Are you planning to live as that kind of flesh-controlled person? It's like, I'm just going to be determined enough to follow Jesus. I'm going to do what's right just by my own decision to do that. Or are you going to submit to the Holy Spirit and wake up in the morning and, and be aware about spiritually what's taking place around you? Recognize that you're too weak to do life on your own. Recognize that The Holy Spirit needs to empower you and that Satan is laying traps around in your life. Looking at at the word and, and seeing the divine perspective of life with truth. 
depending on the Lord with regular wrestling with God, wrestling with his truth, with how you feel, and then submitting to him at the very end of it. I think about just some struggles that people have. And I'm going to recommend that you go to the Lord, be alert, and then go to the Lord in dependence and prayer. I think about someone who's, who's maybe struggling with some sins of the past, maybe regret something that you did, you confessed it, made it right with the Lord, but you still can't get over it. It's like this weight that keeps pounding on you every day. Or think about a person who's being hurt by someone else. Like there's this enemy in your life, and this person is just like the accuser, and they just keep coming after you, and you're just like, what do you keep doing this for? It's such a weight upon you. Or someone who's just facing the trials, like it's so hard. This is such a hard thing in my life right now. This is so painful. How should you... Approach that. Well, I think as you go through those, you need to be alert to the spiritual realities, but also depend on the Lord in prayer. What I want to do just in the last couple minutes we have here today is I just want to actually go through those different, three different topics, if you want to say. I just want to pray to the Lord. I'm not saying this is how you have to pray. I'm not saying this is how Jesus would pray. But I thought, you know, it might be helpful for us to just pray to the Lord and maybe considering these three different examples, someone maybe who has, who has difficulty with past sin and they're regretting it and they're trying to figure out how to overcome that. And someone who is experiencing hurt from someone right now or, or someone who's going through some deep troubles. Like, how should you navigate that? I think this is the thing that I find in counseling is very difficult is that people don't know what that next step is. You know, you talk about all these truths and you go through this and you're like, well, that sounds really good. I need to do that this week. And then it's like, I didn't do that this week. So what do I do next? What does it actually look like to do what Jesus did here? And be alert, and then to pray, to watch, and to pray, trusting the Holy Spirit. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pray. This is not um, me praying a fake prayer. I'm going to genuinely pray to the Lord for us. And, and I want you to um, just follow along with me in, in prayer. You can pray in your heart if you're struggling with one of these different areas. Why don't you just pray to the Lord yourself? And you can sit there in your seat. You can bow your head to the Lord. If you want to turn around your seat and get on your knees before God, you can pray to him. But um, just use this as a time for you to pray to the Lord. You can listen to me or you can just pray on your own to the Lord. Would you bow your hearts and your heads with me? I'm going to pray first. Think about someone who maybe is struggling with something they've done in the past. Maybe some regret they have of how they raise their kids or maybe something they sinned against the Lord in some way or they come to the Lord, they've confessed it and they're struggling with that. Let's pray to the Lord. Father, we can feel the weight of sin upon our hearts. Father, Father, I feel the weight of sin and the accuser, Satan, comes and says, you did that, so you deserve hell. And God is true. We do. But it's not true that we are going to hell because we're trusting you. I'm trusting you. So God, when I, when I feel the accuser come against me and when I feel like I'm so guilty for my sin, I go to your word, Colossians 1, that you have reconciled me to Christ by the physical body of Jesus. So that's true. That's true. I am reconciled to you. Actually, you hear me right now, God. It's sometimes hard to believe that. Like, are you listening to me? But you are. You're listening to me. I believe that's true. 
I have a fellowship with you. And then actually the word, the verse says that you present me as holy without blemish, free from accusation. And I feel accused, but Lord, I believe, I believe your word. And it says, I'm free from accusation. I trust in your son has died for me. His blood pays the penalty for my sin. There's no condemnation because I'm trusting him. And you say, you promise, I'm without accusation. So God, I I surrender to that. I submit to that, that that's true. And I want to live in that light, thinking about that today. Father, I think about someone in here who maybe has someone coming against them. Maybe a person who is maybe a relative or a friend who has betrayed their trust. and, And they just keep attacking them. It's like always these smart comments and so, Lord, we wrestle with that. We wrestle with that because, God, I know that I'm a, a person who deserves sin, judgment like they do. Like, they're, they're no different than me. They're both sinners. But also, I recognize, Lord, that, that you have forgiven me. And that person is sinning against me still. And Jesus didn't respond in evil when he was treated with evil. Romans 12 says we're not to repay anyone evil for evil. I need to be careful to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. I need to make peace. And so, God, I know that even your word says that we're not to be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But you know how I feel? I really want to hurt that person. I mean, that's just truth. I want to hurt them. I want them to experience the pain that they're making me feel. But Jesus didn't do that to us. And thank you, God, for that. Thank you that you didn't do that to us. So I pray you will help me not to do that to them. I pray that, God, I won't be overcome by evil, but I will overcome evil with good. And so I surrender to that, that I want to treat that person with good kindness and love and pray for them. So I pray for them. And I think about, God, someone in here maybe who's struggling with a trial in their life, the difficulties of trials, and that we want the pain to stop. We want that very difficult thing in our life to go away. And God please, would you let that happen? Let it just go away. But your word says that you're working all things together for good. So I guess I recognize this is actually something you're using for good. You can actually take this and do good. And the good is in in Romans 8, 29, is that you're, you're actually making me more like Jesus. So I want this to go away, but you obviously have it in my life for a reason to make me like Jesus. So would you change me to be like Jesus? I submit to that. I want to be like Jesus today. I want to be like Jesus. God, I pray for us in this room that some of us are struggling with things. All of us are, really. What am, I, what am I saying? All of us are struggling with things. And we must wrestle with you in prayer, with truth, with how we feel, and then ultimately with surrender to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.